This is the Manga Mavericks Podcast, Episode 229. We are a podcast not only dedicated to talking about manga as a medium, but as an industry. I'm Colton. And I'm Lam Ramayasha. And finally, we are getting around <laughs> to talking about the latest batch of new Simo Buds. But there have been so many new Simo Buds that we can't cover them all in one episode. So we are going to be doing this in two parts. On today's episode, we will be covering all the new titles from Manga Plus specifically. All 11 of them. That's right. There have been (laughs) nearly a dozen new titles on Manga Plus since the time that we last covered new simulpubs. And that's about half of the new simulpubs that have come out because there have been so many more added on other platforms like Shonen Jump and Comixology and stuff. So we won't be talking about those. But besides these two Manga Plus simulpubs, we will be talking about one title from another publisher, a new exclusive title edition from Oski, Crescent Moon Marching. So... You have some coverage of a dozen new titles on this episode, or at least that's the plan. We'll see how much we can get through them. But there are a lot of new simulposts to talk about, and there's a lot to say about them. Manga Plus is really putting the plus in Manga Plus, for sure. No, they were not kidding when they said, oh, we're going to try to bring out almost every Jump Plus title that we can. I kind of wish they would stop bringing out titles, actually. I think that would make our jobs much easier, but that's just me. (laughs) It's been a new title pretty much every week, so it's been something to pay attention to and be like, oh, wow, another new title to add to the list. Oh, my God. It's a lot to keep up with, but yeah, I am very, very excited to get into talking about these series because it's a lot of titles, but a lot of very different titles uh, with very interesting premises, so there's going to be some stuff to talk about, and I am excited to dig in to it. But before we even get to the Manga Plus series, we mentioned before that we're going to be talking about Oski's new exclusive series. It's not quite a simulpub. They're releasing chapters weekly, but this series ran between 2020 and 2021 in manga action. So it is a completed title about six volumes long that you're just kind of pacing out weekly form. But uh, manga action is the mag that we previously got Hikaru in the Light from and Dear Detective Diaries, both titles that we really enjoyed so i was really excited for crescent moon marching uh by hamachi yamada and if this series is very popular hopefully we'll get yamada's more current work hana ikeru which is uh about a high school ikebana club sort of like moabana it's publishing in big comic spirits right now so be interested in seeing if that gets picked up at some point but uh if we're ready to just jump right in to these new simulpods we can start off at crescent moon marching yeah let's let's march through all the manga we have to talk about today That sounds like a plan. Crescent Moon Marching is a story about Miski Himikawa, who is a shy, timid, introverted, and rather gloomy girl. She decides that she wants to run away from home over her spring break and come back to Akita, where her aunt lives, to get away from her overbearing mother and also... After realizing that she'd always done just what her mom wanted her to do, including like going to a high school that she picked out and working towards going to a good college, really all because that would make her mom happy. And she doesn't really know what she herself wants, what makes her happy. She really hasn't found a lot of things that give her joy and purpose in her life. So when she asked her mom, like if she could do something besides studying over spring break, her mom asked her just coldly, like what? And she realizes, oh, I don't, I don't know what else I want to do. And that terrifies her and worries her that if she doesn't do something, she'll end up like a boring old adult. 
So she goes to visit her aunt to, you know, when she was a child, say, hey, if you grow up and you feel you ever need an escape, you know, come back to me. And yeah, her aunt is a very nurturing, friendly, outgoing person. She's boisterous. Mizuki comments that she laughs like a middle-aged man. Harad gives her a place to stay at her cafe, and so she helps her around there and just tries to take it easy, but she still doesn't really escape that nagging feeling that she's discontent, that she's, like, just not found purpose in her life. But one day, she helps her aunt do a delivery to the local high school, Senshu High School, and when she goes back to get the receipts of her car, she's pushed out of the way by a part-time worker from her aunt's cafe who, you know, pushes her out of the way of, like, falling snow and he does it by like the gymnasium where the marching band that he's a part of is performing and so she overhears the marching band's performance and she becomes so captivated by the performance that she is able to genuinely smile for the first time a long while she had spent so long just looking down at the ground not really looking at the world in front of her hearing this music it captivates her, it makes her look not just at the band, but it makes her look like up. And the chapter ends, the first chapter ends with her looking up at the night sky and seeing the moon, which is where the title of the manga comes from. But at the encouraging of her aunt, she goes to the Cubs practice the next day. She gets excited when she's able to make a sound on Akira's trumpet and is encouraged by the team captain to practice with them. And even though she trips and falls in her first time, uh, she wants to keep playing. And she admits that, you know, she was envious of how dazzling the marching man looked during the performance that she too wants to commit to something that she's passionate about and shine just as brightly as them. And even when her dad comes to bring her home, she speaks back to him, tells him that, you know, even though she's like still stumbling, playing in this band makes her finally feel alive and makes her feel that she might finally be able to change and gain some self-confidence. So the manga has been following Mizuki kind of learning the trumpet, learning how to get better at it, and also doing marching band performance training. A lot of the first volume and a half is focused on the marching band training for this upcoming Akita Marching Festival which is a qualifying prefecture-wide competition during Golden Week where, you know, the top two bands basically get to go on the Nationals in the fall. So we get to know some of the other band members, and then mostly it's focused on Mizuki's kind of journey, like trying to figure out, well, this is something that I really want to do. I'm not great at it right now, but what can I do? How can I contribute? How can I learn and gain confidence in myself that this is something that I'm capable of doing? I'm capable of being good at. And it's something that I love. And I'm finding so much happiness and contentment, you know, having comrades, friends who I'm doing this with instead of like feeling alone in what I'm doing as she had been so long. So yeah, I found this to be a very sweet manga. I think every chapter has like one really captivating spread that really just kind of makes you take pause and appreciate just a moment of wonder of like the performance of music or just like an accomplishment that Mizuki has or just the, the beauty of the world that, you know, you just take pause to pay attention to. Like there are moments uh, like when she hears like the performance for the first time of the band like when she's practicing the first time and like everyone walks in sync when she's taking a drive with yuki and they just like appreciate the cherry blossoms around them 
they're just like moments like that that just make you take pause and just appreciate kind of the surroundings of the world are just a moment that I really, really appreciate. And also just any time that Mizuki like feels such genuine joy, I think it's captured so well. Like when her eyes light up and smile, uh, it really does touch the heart to just see this person like find so much joy and excitement. And I think that the art, Yamada's art way that they draw like characters and way they draw these these moments of her and her smiles and her just lit up faces, you know, they always really touch me when I see them. So I find it very endearing and a very sweet manga so far. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think I had a whole lot of expectations going into this, but man, I got to tell you, I think the thing that I like most about the series is like right at the beginning, the color work at the beginning is, I think, some of the best I've seen in any manga. Like, it, it is genuinely really, really beautiful. Like, I, it's, it's really hard for me to describe, but like the opening color pages are basically her like going to the train station, running home and being like, I can't keep doing this. Like, you know, basically taking a break from her studies as like we learn a little later in the chapter. I love the way that like, because obviously the scene is like kind of colored in a nice shade of blue, but like combined with like all the lights of the city and everything, it's just so great. Yeah. Heavy blue hues with some yellow, red, pink highlights, uh, very watercolory. But yeah, I, I really find that their color painting is just so striking and just very evocative. I didn't want to stop looking at it. I didn't even, I, I, th I think I spent like a good five minutes just looking at these colored pages. I didn't even want to read the rest of the chapter, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be great if like it could have been full color, but like the black and white art is so evocative too. Yeah, the, the art for the rest of the series is still really good too. Like I, I agree. I, I should have mentioned at the top, uh, I read about three chapters of everything we're covering today. But uh, I, I think especially around chapter three, where it is her like, you know, taking place in marching band practice and like just just learning how to like walk and march with the rest of her bandmates. And like what you were saying earlier about like, there's always at least one like really great spread that captures like a really significant moment of her practicing in the marching band. And th that page where it is her like taking one step forward with her bandmates, like that was already really good. But then the follow-up where it's like, she looks down at her feet, and then it's contrasted with earlier points where it's like, she's looking at her feet and like, she's the only one there. But now she has other people, friends beside her, and it like makes her like, smile with joy. And like, you can it's, I don't know, man, that, that shit really got to me. Yeah. It was, I, I don't know, like, I... It's really hard for me to like describe how I feel about the series in words, but like there are just some moments where like I just I just feel pure joy and I'm like I want to I want to see this girl do good. I want to see her march, you know? I know. Like the, her smile as the sun is setting, that just that panel of just sort of looking down at people's feet. Like those panels where we're just seeing the just the joy in her face, they always warm my heart so much. And yeah, like it, it makes you really feel her joy. It's just so evocative in that way. And I just find that so sweet. I think it's impossible to be sad reading this, honestly. Yeah, it's very uplifting because even though she does stumble and fail, she messes up like at the festival initially, but she's shown so much kindness and encouragement, not by everyone. There are some people who like kind of rag on her, like the leader of the trumpet section is kind of a jerk who says, oh, I don't expect any of you. When we go to the festival, you should just like mime playing and not actually play because it's impossible for you to learn how to do this in time. But even then, like she wins over like her detractors like that 
that by her conviction by like saying no her dedication is like no I want to do this I want to do everything that I can do and she puts in the effort to practice every day to get help to do better and you know people are so kind to help her like the team captain and Akira who Akira like helps practice with her every day right up until the festival and then when she's nervous because she messed up initially like at the festival like the team captain just kind of gives her a hand signal that recalls to her the training they did together and makes her confident that oh I practiced this I know what to do and that gives her the confidence to play as she practiced and that's such a great scene too because just the way that sequence we have just a small panel of the captain and Miss Key in silhouette in the foreground and it's just like a moment that really establishes just a pause of like oh this is a moment in this space this brief moment of just connection between them of like dancing and inspiration like everything else is like disappearing from the background and earlier that chapter that's so great because like we were having like a really great illustration of Mizuki's tunnel vision from a first person perspective like with uh Iris Border where we're just having her like kind of taken the environment and feel like so overwhelmed by just like how big the hall that they're playing at is and her surroundings and just the nervousness of that as she's like looking at it just from her perspective so I Yamana does some really really strong things with his art to emphasize emotions and moments and feelings in a moment and it really does a whole lot to just kind of suck you into the manga's pace and really like kind of sit with these moments as they come and just like take them in so I really love how the manga is like paced and just lets you appreciate just how moments come across especially like the sweet moments but also like moments where you're just meant to kind of take pause to take in the world and take in a moment and I, I really appreciate that for sure yeah I don't know I just like I said, I didn't really have any expectations going into this. So like, I, I was not expecting to like be this blown away or like this invested in, in the story, I guess, especially as someone who short anecdote in middle school, I used to take like band classes and I thought like, Oh, it'd be kind of cool to like learn the trumpet. And then I learned that I hated it. Uh. Uh, and it led to me uh, literally being a part of concerts where while everybody was like, like they're performing and I'm just sitting there, like not blowing into my trumpet at all, like pretending that I'm playing and Nope, nobody caught me. I got away with it, so it's fine. So, like, as someone who hated taking band classes in middle school, this made me think, like, oh, maybe band's kind of cool, actually. Like, I want to start marching. <laughs> no, I think that's also what the author wanted to communicate. In, like, the afterword in the first volume, Yamada mentioned that they first encountered marching bands in high school. It gave them wonderful experience that they still treasure. And so they wrote the manga to depict like the effort and emotions behind the surface of putting on like exciting performances, you know, teach people more about marching bands. And here's the part to draw because, you know, 2020 was a difficult time because of COVID. Mm -hmm. uh, you couldn't have like a lot of in-person activities. So they wanted to create a manga that was really positive and brought joy to the people who read it and inspire and interest people in checking out their local marching bands. And definitely like in reading this manga and just kind of 
you know, any manga that can get you to kind of really feel the sensation of people being enraptured by music uh, is very successful and like kind of making the most of being a soundless medium to communicate like kind of the power of music. So I think that they did a really good job in the series of doing that. Like whenever you see playing, like I like the string of musical notes that can often goes to the page, but just also just the depictions of characters playing or doing their activities is always you know so evocatively drawn that it, it kind of does blow you away with the just the sensation and emotion that's depicted on the page so i think they did do a very successful job of that and did make me want to be like oh i want to check out some marching band performances myself and listen to marching band music while reading the manga so i think they have been very successful in their attentions in how they've written and drawn the manga i'd say so um i definitely want to read more of this I definitely recommend it. There's a lot of sweet stuff that comes up later. There's also, of course, conflict stuff. Like, Miss Key's mom is a very cold person. She hasn't turned around yet, and she's a little bit unscrutable. Even, like, Yuki, her own sister, is like, you know, she's kind of like an alien to me. And that's how hard it is for me to understand her. Because she was always someone as a kid who got good grades that was never any social. And when Mizki, she's only interested in her academics. She doesn't care about like her band performing at all. But her dad, Mizki's dad, has a very sweet relationship with her. Initially, like he has been distant from his daughter because, you know, he travels a lot for work. He rarely is home. And when he does come home, he doesn't really speak to her a lot. But, you know, they used to be very close as a kid. And when he goes to see her play at the festival, like initially he's going to like test her to see, well, if she isn't really good at this, I'm just going to bring her home. But, you know, he gets nervous for her and he gets so thrilled and touched by seeing her play. And the, the performance they play is seen after the Wizard of Oz, which brings back this nostalgia of him reading Wizard of Oz to her as a kid. And, you know, there's this whole like kind of thematic connection between Wizard of Oz and Misky's situation of like you know a girl who lived in a boring monochrome world gets caught up in the wind and finds herself now in a more colorful magical world joined by companions and beginning an adventure and so like that kind of really moves him and then when he he doesn't know what to say to her afterward because like they've been so distant from each other but like when talks with Misky after the performance like she like with such a genuine happy smile thanks him for letting her play in the band and that moves him to tears and it's just such a sweet moment in relationship and I really was touched by that story and I'm touched by Misky's relationships with a lot of other characters in the series who are so supportive of her her aunt as mentioned before is such a great mentor figure and surrogate like muttering feature nurturing figure in terms of supporting her and encouraging her Akira is like a good contrast to her because He's also passionate about a uh, marching band, but like unlike Miski, who is like drawn to Akita because it's like so different from what she knows and she finds it a more comforting place than Tokyo. Akira wants to leave Akita and like tour the best marching bands all around the world. So, you know, they have similar passions, but their goals are leading them to different places. But like Akira inspires Mizuki to also dream big and feel that she can do this. And very interestingly, the, the team captain who... I will say one thing about the series, it takes a very long time for characters to get names established. Like the team captain's name isn't like 
said until chapter five, even though she's introduced in like the second chapter. And like there are other characters who take like a lot of chapters to like get what their actual names are. So that's one thing. I mean, there's a lot of characters because in the Marching Man, there's like 30 plus characters, but still it's like, oh, uh, <laughs> you feel, the team captain was a big presence as a second chapter. You'd think that she'd get named right away. But the team captain, Sachan, we get a lot of hints that like she used to be a lot like Miski in terms of seeing someone who, you know, was kind of a crybaby who wasn't like super confident, but now she's grown into being this super confident, cheery, like inspiring leader for her bandmates. And she also, like Miski, is a big dreamer. So, yeah, I like seeing the connection between them as well. So, uh, and there are a lot of other characters. She makes, like, some good friends. And there's some other supporting characters who have some interesting stuff going on. Even, like, the team advisors have, like, had an interesting side story going on. So there's there's a lot of really uh, compelling story threads in this. But at the center of it is just Mizuki's story of like self-growth and confidence and discovering what she's passionate about and what she's capable of. And I just find all that very sweet and effective. So I definitely recommend this. This is another great pickup from Oski. Very excited to keep on with it. Oh, for sure. I'm definitely going to read more of this at some point. Excellent. So recommendation for us for Crescent Moon Marching and now let's get into some other Manga Plus series, and we'll see which one of these we stand just as much. And how appropriate, we'll start off with Stand for Salvation by Osamu Koski. So we're basically going to go through all these Manga Plus series uh, in order of when they get on it. So Stand for Salvation has been the one that's been out for the longest at this point. It's been around since about March... I- believe that I talked about it briefly on a previous episode announcing that there were some new titles on Manga Plus. But basically the premise of this is, you know, angels and demons have been battling since, you know, BC times. And even to this day, they continue to battle and manage demons back to hell so they don't steal human souls and release the gate of Gehenna and unleash hell on earth. And so we follow Michael, the archangel, as he goes to Japan to infiltrate a concert put on by a visual K-band that is led by demons and that have earned a huge following in Japan through their music. And so he doesn't really quite get what is going on, but he's like, oh no, all of these people are like enraptured by the, the demons' music and are worshipping him. I gotta stop them. And so he tries to fight the demons, but a power mechanic in the series is fate. And through, like, earning a fan base, the demon band, Wilgia, has really earned a very strong following, a far stronger following than the angels, who aren't very well known in Japan. So Michael the Archangel's fate power level is only a 5 compared to Wilga's, which is a 530,000, which uh, if you know, you know what that is. And I will say there are a lot of uh, Dragon Ball references in this manga that are pretty funny. But yeah, so, you know, with that uh, base power level, we haven't even seen like their, their true power levels yet, you know? We'll see. We'll see how that goes in the future. But basically, Michael tries to fight Wilga, but obviously 5 versus 500. 30,000. He's no match. He gets blown away, lands in the backyard of this girl, Eve, whose mom is a big fan of Guilga, but also is a big fan of idols. And Ibuki's mom encourages Michael to become an idol and believes, oh, you can do it. You're pretty attractive and is a big supporter of him. And Ibuki comes to quickly realize that, oh, this this angel guy is like way in over his head. So she decides to help him out on his path to become an idol by 
you know, basically being their manager and PR person, like taking pictures of them managing their social media accounts and kind of just giving them advice of like, what what would be good ideas to do so they don't go off the rails. And Michael is soon recruited by his other Archangel cohorts. Raphael, who is very cheery and free-spirited and decides to just become an idol to become super popular, whereas Michael has this more like dedicated mission of like wanting to become an idol, basically to gain enough of a following in Japan and gain the power enough to fight Wiga on equal footing and banish him. Also, it's worth noting that for an angel, it's actually not allowed for angels to be worshipped like idols. So doing this risks them all getting banished from heaven. But they are so dedicated to the idea of, oh, we've got to free these people from being taken in by these demons that they're like, no, we've got to make this sacrifice and risk to become idols so that we can lead people back to the light, basically. Uh, their other Archangel teammates are Gabriel, who tends to get very lost and somehow got a job as a ramen delivery man, which he often gets called away to perform deliveries uh, at inconvenient times. And he accidentally bought a Grilga Dojin in the airport and mistook it for religious venue. So he wants to save the souls of like these Dojin authors, basically, which at least are a great joke of like Ibuki, like just taking the Dojin away and just putting it in a folder and then wrapping it up with tape and then just putting it under her mom's shrine just to hide it away because she knows like the angels are so naive they don't really know that it's like a rock Dojin. It'd just be too much for them. And then the final member of their team is Uriel, who actually did get banished from heaven for being a trite as an idol, but is still friendly with the others and gives them like a coaching advice as like kind of the more senior idol of the team. And he, you know, is a skilled piano player. He also knows somewhat more social manners than the rest of the group. Like he knows how to blend in the crowd and how to talk to people politely. Uh, and his idea of idolatry, he derives it from Tokusatsu and the Ranga Ranger series because he believes these are the idols of Japan. They carry the fate of Japanese kids. I mean, fair. Uh, he early was also very popular with the ladies. Like, Buki's mom is, like, super intent. Like, when he comes to their house for the first time, she, like, gets on the floor to, like, look up at him. And she's, like, nice. So, like, she takes some opportunities to get close to him. Like, taking strength training lessons from him. And gets very, uh, very enthusiastic. But she's enthusiastic about supporting the idols in general. Like, she's an overworked freelance designer working from home, but she, like, makes a bunch of merch for them, like plushies of them, custom plushies. Uh, a quote from her that I really like is that idols are like energy drinks, especially when they're wearing the same shirt. It's very nutritious. So that gives you a sense of just, like, how zealous she is about idols. And then in exchange for help, the angels gave her a book of, like, untranslated records of demons, stories, and stuff like that. And yeah, so the manga is basically about this ragtag group of like very earnest and naive angels trying to become an idol group. And they managed to gain a following by like performing in public parks and anime and children's songs. And they went over a lot of kids and young moms that way and some office ladies too. Like early on, like their first real fan kind of moved by singing Auld Lang Syne, which was like a trick by the leader of Guilga to like make everyone go home because in Japan all in sign is kind of a going home song but like this one office lady it moved her heart so she became her first fan and then in addition to Guilga as like kind of like rivals the leader Guilga is more into just being like a band leader rather than like getting into conflict with the idols he just sees them as like kind of an eyesore 
though his bandmates are like more into the idea of like kind of challenging them. But like kind of the more present antagonistic force is Lucifer, Michael's brother that he once sealed away in Gehenna that, you know, is just such a prideful person and such a vain person. Like somehow, like I guess the demons helped him escape. And so now he's a popular streamer and he's sort of in league with Rilga, but also likes trolling and teasing them. And he has a fate power of over 20,000. And he believes that only people with big desire can be main characters. So he cites like examples from manga and stuff and believes that idols convert strong desire to aesthetics. So, you know, angels with desire become like him, but like Michael and his group, they don't have strong desires. So they, they can't win over Wilga and stuff like that. Though Michael sort of proves him wrong by like saying, well, I want to win against you, which literally like quite literally blows him away. But yeah, so he's like kind of the more antagonistic force. Though he's not allied with Wheel Guy, he's kind of a third force that is kind of like <laughs> working to mess with both sides. But yeah, so I find the series very funny. There's a lot of really cute humor. I think the characters are all endearingly silly. And so, yeah, I, I've just been enjoying this as a nice comedy. There's some just fun pop culture jokes. Like I mentioned the tokusatsu reference before, the DBZ reference before. There's a joke in one chapter where they sing a song that's a parody of a Pokemon team song, Mazaze Pokemon Master. In this manga, they call the series Unimon. But I noticed the lettering is even in the Pokemon font when they're singing the song which i don't know if they actually license that or uh that's like something that maybe they don't want the pokemon company international to find out they're using but i did love that attention to detail i thought that was very amusing and cute but yeah so i uh, really enjoy the series i think it's it's very charming and funny yeah i feel the same way I thought this was just kind of a nice little comedy thing that you know maybe can involve into something more depending on uh, how big we want the stakes to go. I don't know. You know, we are dealing with angels and all that stuff after all. It is very silly, though. So I don't think it'll ever evolve into the high stakes because like even the the antagonistic characters of Gwilga and Lucifer are like just very silly characters or very like low stakes (laughs) desires. Like technically Gwilga is working to open the gate of Gehenna. But like I said, the demon band leader is like more into just being a band leader and like moved by being admired by so many fans. And is just like into music and even is sort of supportive of the angels. Like after he tricks like them to sing all that side, but sees that they move the office worker he like gives them one of his guitar picks and says like okay you get better and reach my level basically though he also like wanted to kind of get away from the situation because he just found it awkward and even though he was trying to initially get to the music store on the other side of them he just turns away so he's also kind of an awkward person that kind of likes avoiding conflict with the angels like you know there's another moment where they like see gabriel flying to make one of his deliveries and his bandmates are like oh should we shoot him down and He's like, no, he's doing a delivery. Don't get food involved in this. So it's just very silly, those stakes. I, I say like the whole Wilga, those characters alive was reminds me very much of like DMC. The leader reminds me a lot of the lead character in that series too. So I find them amusing. But yeah, I, I think that this is going to be mostly low stakes comedy, but yeah. No, that makes sense. I did like that chapter where they are like singing on the street. And like you said, the lead vocalist of Gilga like comes up to them. And it's this whole thing where like, yeah, he he's not like, you know, I think it'd be easy to assume at the beginning, like, oh, what if what if he is actually a demon or whatever, but he's not. He's just an awkward guy who. Well, he is a demon. 
All the Gwilgar are actually demons. Okay, see, I didn't know that. Yeah, again, I, I only read so far. <laughs> no, they are actually demons. It's just that Gwilgar's leader in particular is just like more into being <laughs> being a band leader right now. Oh, okay, so the okay. long-term goal is to actually open the gate of Gehenna, but like his bandmates are more interested in actually having conflict with the angels than he is. So he's always like telling his bandmates like, no, don't get involved with them. It's a, it's a pain. Like, I get back to work. We got so many CDs to sign. He's more interested in the band work than actually the demon work. But he is an awkward guy, and it is very adorable. Well, I was just going to say earlier, like, yeah, I I like that it seems like he doesn't really want to be involved, but at the same time, he's kind of like humoring them a little bit. Like, I kind of like the interaction in particular. I think um, chapter three out of the little I read was, I think, the funniest to have the most gags. It's basically just them trying to build up their presence on social media. And they sing the hemorrhoid song. Or is that a later? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, them singing the hemorrhoid jingle was pretty good. And it, that. And then they have to sing Gwilga song, even though it literally causes the wind pushed back. But like the kids and moms are all like, you can do it because they're trying so hard, even though it's like literally causing them push back to do it, which is very funny. I like that the mom brings up later like, oh, you can't violate copyright. So they, they can't use that. So they have to go with the hemorrhoid jingle. <laughs> I really love the gag at the beginning of that chapter where, like, I, I think it's uh, Michael trying to set up their social media account. And they're just like, oh, I just can't get past this one question. And it's just like the captcha at the beginning of, like, all these different sites and apps where it's like, are you a robot or whatever? And they have to ask, they think it's asking Siri if it's a robot. <laughs> yeah. And so they ask Siri, are you a robot? And she answers no. And so that's what allows them to actually do the correct answer on the captcha, which is very funny. Yes. I like that the series so far has like a lot of like simple jokes like that. Like, yeah, just the naivety of the angels in the modern world and <laughs> trying to understand it from in their like classical understanding of the world is very funny. Look, I've said before, I am a sucker for like fish out of water stuff. So that stuff always kind of gets to me as I'm an easy mark for that kind of thing. But yeah, overall, I think this is cute. I would probably read more at some point, but I have to be honest, I think out of everything that we're covering on the show today, this is kind of on the lower tier, but that doesn't mean I like dislike it. I just think there are other series that we're going to cover here soon that I am just that much more desperate to get to like sooner rather than later. But th- this one I thought was fun. Yeah, I mean, I've really been enjoying the series, so I don't think there's like a lot of, there's not a lot more I can like analyze it necessarily, but it is just a lot of fun in terms of the characters and the jokes and just the general like kind of comfy vibe of it. So yeah, for sure. I definitely recommend it if you're interested in like a good laugh with just some naive goofy characters trying to make it as idols without really understanding what it actually means to be an idol. Oh, for sure. So yeah. Now we're going to go from like this silly, goofy comedy to uh, a complete 180 of more of a kind of darker horror thriller manga that definitely does have more of a kind of thematic grounding to it. And this is Jinri Shoku Blight of Man by writer Mitsuchi Yomaru and artist Yuki Sato. Basically what's going on in this series is that 
there are like these mummily sons, mummified persons. Uh, the name mummily comes from mummy plus family, basically, because people are just suddenly turning into mummies and they seemingly can keep living on for days, even after they die. And some have like mind controlled powers that they can use on their loved ones when they look directly into their eyes. They seem to develop, they manifest for being in a dependent relationship with the people they live with. And so you have all these stories that are being discussed at the beginning of like the chapter on social media of like, oh, like how come people don't notice that their loved ones suddenly become a mummy? That is like so weird. How do people suddenly become a mummy? Certainly, there are some theories that are thrown around, like one of the classmates of our main characters is like, oh, it's it's got to be something by aliens. You know, I, I interacted with aliens when I was a kid, but uh, I don't think that's not going to be the case. But there's definitely something spiritual and spooky going on what's happening with these these mummies. Our main characters are Hayato and Seita. They're both a part of the soccer club together. Uh, Seita moved to Hayato's neighborhood about six months prior to the beginning of the manga. And because, you know, they take the same read home, he wanted to reach out to be friends with him. And they quickly became close. And Seita invited Hayato to join the soccer team with him. And so, you know, they've become pretty close friends and hanging out and stuff. But whenever Seita has gone to visit Hayato, Hayato at home, he's noticed how his mother treats him and noticed around his home that, you know, there are a lot of beer cans and bottles lying around. It's not a really clean environment and it's a very telltale signs of a toxic home environment. And most certainly, Hayato has a very toxic and codependent relationship with his mom. And she's very, like, verbally, emotionally, and physically abusive of him. Like, I'm one Brett, like, he, he has to be on guard with her because he doesn't know what will make her snap. Because at one moment, she'll be acting very kind to him. But in the next, like, something will set her off and she'll start pulling at his air or, like, slapping him or punishing him for, like, just upsetting her for some reason. So he's not in a very good place. And Seita is worried about him. But because Hayato, you know, generally he loves his mom. He, he doesn't recognize that what his mom is doing to him is abuse. Seita just doesn't know how to help him because Hayato isn't asking for help. And Seita himself is not really from more of a well-off background because Seita comes from like this long line of oracles. His family is famous for being like mediums and fortune tellers. His parents died when he was young, but his relatives only wanted custody of his sister, who was an outstanding medium. And he didn't really have that talent. So he has just been passed around from place to place between different family members. And so he doesn't really have a supportive home life himself. Like his current adoptive parents really don't care much about him at all outside of like kind of the benefits of taking him in uh, that they can get from the head family. But Seita is still worried for Hayato and still thinking about what he can do to help his friend. But one day, Hayato's mom suddenly becomes a mummy right when Hayato is homesick. And so Hayato ends up staying homesick for a week and that gets Seita worried and come visit him. And like Hayato tells him, thank you for visiting me, but oh no, you need to get away from here before my mom goes home. And when Hayato's mom comes home, Seita notices, oh crap, something's off with her. She looks scary. And she know he notices that she's become a, a like mummy 
family. And like, he doesn't know what to do. But like, right before Hayato closed the door and asked Seita to leave, like he left a little note in his palm saying, help me. The first time that Hayato has ever asked Seita for help. So Seita's like, okay, I got to go back for my friend. And he does that. But he kind of falls into this trap where Hayato has been hypnotized by his like mumbly turned mom uh, into luring him to her. And then she like attacks him and cuts out his eye because uh, she notices that he isn't falling under her powers of suggestion, which she can use when she looks into people's eyes, which is what she did to Hayato. But she notices, oh, it must be Seita's eyes. There's something special about him and his bloodline that makes him like immune to hypnotic suggestion. So she gouges out his right eye and feeds it to Hayato. And it's hard to tell, like, how much of a sense of self mummy persons, like, still have, but she feeds Sayato this eye. But, like, uh, Seita is still alive, even though, like, Hayato's son proceeds to, like, cut him up and butcher him, uh, and tries to signal Hayato to, like, break his trance and hypnosis uh, from his mom, which he manages to do, but with a soccer ball. And because, like, Hayato is, like, ingested one of his eyes, and he has, like, these spiritual powers, Seita is able to kind of possess him, and, like, kind of telepathically link with Hayato in the eye that's inside of him, which, like, manifests, like, on his format, and actually can, like, move around to different parts of his body. So that allows Hayato to break free of his mom's control, and, like, they fight back against and subdue her and after that like they are trying to figure out like what is going on with these these mumbly persons like they get involved with this bigger investigation that a police department is doing there's like this cop who is yet to be named but who can like see through spiritual powers uh so he noticed that seita is inside of hayato he notices his presence in him and he is trying to investigate these mummies, but he leaves them be for the time being until the most recent chapters where they've come and encountered each other again. But like, there's also this uh, organization, Diger, that who's the founder of that. He lost his wife to becoming a mummy like five years ago. So now he's the head of an institute researching them and like why they are coming about. And then he adopts Hayato and takes him in. And then Hayato ends up kind of sort of becoming step siblings with his daughter, Rena, who, you know, also has trauma from like her mom also becoming a mummy, but also acts a lot like Hayato's mom in terms of like kind of how hot and cold she can be to people. And so it's kind of a, an interesting, odd relationship that they have, though he ends up rescuing her in some of the most recent chapters from a, a mummily stalker. There's a lot going on in terms of different treads because Seita's body is, you know, he tries to go back in his body because his body survives, but he is unable to because something is possessing him now. And that whatever is possessing him now hypnotizes his adoptive parents and gets them to bring him eyes that he uses to replace the missing eye that Hayato's mom cut out of him. And now he's out and about. So there's a lot of different treads going on with different characters. Like I mentioned before, Seid has a sister and then she somehow has kind of like this premonition that Hayato and Seita's meeting will be very important and advantageous to the Rabe family, their family down the line. And she's keeping track on him, like using a crow that she uses to just kind of watch over him and like inform her what's going on. And yeah, there's, there's a lot of different treads going on, but it's a very interesting, like mystery thriller. The depictions of like the mummies, they are like very creepy, like these 
shriveled, decaying body that are just like looking so ghostly and zombie-like. Uh, also, they do some creepy things with like these auras, like they come behind characters and just like general paneling and expressions of horror and dread. So I think that the art in the series is, is really uh, affecting and conveying that horror vibe. And so far, I think it's been just a really, really strong and intriguing trailer with just a lot of mysteries going on that makes you wonder like, okay, what is happening? There's something spiritual and supernatural here. Uh, and there's all these elements and you're wondering how are they all going to tie in together? So I am finding it really intriguing so far. Yeah, this was, I thought this was pretty good. Um, again, I, I didn't have any expectations for this going in other than, oh, it seems like another one of those like, you know, sort of darker series or whatever. And yeah, I think the thing that like stood out to me about this I don't know what it is about the series. I really like the way the series, like, figuratively and literally explores abuse. Yeah. I mean, literally, like, the mummies are, like, abusive people. It's, like, literally turning, like, an abusive person into a monster. And I think that is, like, such an interesting take to it. Especially because the most key examples so far are, like, family members. Like, yeah. it's specifically mentioned that mummies are, like, people who are living in very codependent relationships with someone else. And, like, they're the abusive person in that relationship. So, like, Hayato's mom becoming a mummy, it's, like, literally, you know, she was acting so monstrously towards him and then her becoming a mummy is like just a literal manifestation of like oh she is a monster and like Hayato can't see her for a monster but Seita can and that's just an interesting tread uh, and then also it happens with the other examples we see later on like Rena's mom and then like her stalker are also very much like that so I really appreciate that, that this is a series that is like really kind of using its concept in a way that is exploring just a theme of like abusive relationships and literally just symbol. The monsters are literally just symbolic of an abusive person in a toxic codependent relationship. And uh, I think that's very clever. And it kind of gives the series more of a thematic weight and trust to what is it trying to say and explore than like some other horror series of, you know, they're just monsters around. But what are the monsters mean, really? But like in this series, oh, no, there's like a powerful point to like what the series is trying to say about like being in an abusive relationship and what that can feel like as an outside observer and to someone who's inside of it. And then there's the lingering trauma of it, too. Like we have... Hayato still unable to really reconcile the fact that oh my mom was abusive to me why are these cops saying such bad things about her that she she abused me and stuff like that and even Seita has to acknowledge the difficulty of the situation because one other thing that I found so interesting is that the series like acknowledges that Hayato's mom was horribly abusive but in her own twisted way she genuinely believed that she loved Hayato and then like when Seita saw that her spirit basically as she was dying he saw basically her say you know please take care of Hayato for me and so it's like this complicated thing uh, that it's acknowledging of like just because a person is abusive too doesn't necessarily mean that in their own mind they are really self-aware that they are hurting someone or that that they don't actually love someone but it's like a very difficult thing to kind of reconcile and acknowledge just this complicated territory and I appreciate that it doesn't like absolve or redeem Hayato's mom for what she did but it is like navigating acknowledging that there are like this muddled emotional territory and talk toxic and codependent relationships that makes it very difficult to process because it's not 
completely black and white uh, in terms of understanding like the psychology of a person. Yeah, I like that it's not as simple as, oh, Hayato's mom clearly doesn't love Hayato. Or, oh, like you said, when he's in the hospital, like it's also not as simple as, oh, Hayato doesn't just immediately get over his abuse. Like, he still has that trauma. Like, he still fully believes that, like, oh, my mother, like, had a reason for the way she treated me or whatever. Like, I like that this series is realistic in that way where it's like, oh, he's, he's not just suddenly over that. It's gonna take some time for him to, like, really reconcile and come to terms with his situation. And I, I really hope that's the arc he goes through, and I really hope, I really want to see where he's at with that by the end of the series. Yeah, and things trigger his trauma too. Like when he goes to the house of his new adoptive parent and like he's having dinner with Rena and like eating dinner with her, it kind of triggers memories of eating with his mom and then the way Rena treats him, you know, reminds him of his mom. So like he's still like kind of psychologically still reliving a lot of those traumatic moments and not really understanding how to process them. So I think he forms also like kind of a toxic attachment to Rena because she reminds him so much of his mom too. So when she he sees her like in trouble, like he gets really angry to the point of like almost killing the mummified soccer person, which like Miracana shows so so he can go either way in terms of like how he grapples with and processes this trauma. He can either heal from it and become a more whole person or he can like let those emotions like lead him to more destructive and violent paths. And certainly he's gotten like extra supernatural powers, like thanks to the situation and like kind of fusing in a sense with Seta. Like he's gotten super strength and the ability to kind of like see how things move in slow motion, also see the weak spots of things. So he could be something that alongside with him just like kind of being in this unstable mental state, be something that leads him down a, a dark path too. So it's really interesting kind of territory. It's navigating with his character and just seeing how a survivor of trauma processes their grief. And we see that from Rana too, and with her like still having like lingering feelings about her mom and what happened with her, but also like being bullied at school, her dad not being around a lot, and that being reflected in the way she lashes out and treats people like hot and coldly. So it's really interesting just the way it explores the psychology of these characters and like how their behavior is like kind of informed by kind of their past and how they are processing the trauma of their past. For sure, for sure, yeah. I think the moment that stood out to me was in chapter two where Hayato's mom comes back as a mummy and she's just like, staring at him over top of him while he's in bed and you know she's like oh i'm home and literally like uses her like mummily powers to like almost kind of put him in a trance almost and man i really thought i mean you know it's it's just such a like powerful way to depict the sort of control that codependent abusive relationships can have on people it's 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 good stuff yeah, it's pretty powerful. And we see that not just happen with sight as a power suggestion, but also with uh, the possessed Seta, like kind of voice too. So it's showing like kind of different forms of manipulation and control and how people in a toxic relationship can affect each other. Mm hmm. But yeah, I I, th I think thematically, the series is very, very rich. And I really want to keep reading. This is one I really want to keep reading for sure. And I really want to see how it continues to explore these themes of toxic relationships and abuse. Because so so far, I think it's really been knocking it out of the park. That's what I'm really excited, interested into. And I think it's done a really strong job so far and has set up a lot of 
interesting threads and characters that I want to follow and see where their stories go. But most particularly in the characters of Hayato and Rena and how they are kind of processing their the trauma and the abuse they had in their past and how that will shape them as people and how they're able to heal from it. And Seita too, in terms of like his past to be like passed around and feeling alone in his own family, basically. Uh, and Sukiko, Seita's sister, also feeling kind of trapped and unable to escape their family and like have the job she's been assigned. So there's, there's a lot of interesting things about kind of toxic family relationships and like kind of healing from that in this manga that I'm curious about and seeing how it'll develop further. One thing I will mention as like a, a content warning is that the stalker, Rena Stalker, we do see him force himself on her. And that was, I think, a step too far that I wasn't a fan of. Thankfully, it wasn't done exploitatively, but it is kind of an upsetting moment that I think I should give people content warming for, for like the most recent chapters. But hopefully it doesn't veer into too exploitative territory like that often. So far, it's been mostly good. But that's just one moment that gave me pause of like, oh, no, I'm not liking seeing this, even though it is portrayed as a horrifying moment, but still. Yeah, like this is a very dark series, obviously, but I also agree. I, I hope, I guess besides that moment that, I hope the series doesn't go too far in that direction to the point where, like you said, it just feels exploitative and we're not really exploring anything deeper, like the characters are just miserable all the time, you know? I do also want to point out a moment that I think like really represents the things that this manga explores in a nutshell, where I think it is Seita in the hospital with his uh, foster parents who who took him in or whatever, and, you know, the mom's crying and the dad's like, oh, it's okay, I know you're probably really worried, and no, the mom's just like, oh, we adopted this kid from like a really powerful family, like what's gonna happen to us or whatever, like she, that's kind of all she's worried about, and the, all the doctor can think is is, oh man, there's some really awful parents out there. And it's just like, yep, that's just the that's just the mission statement of this manga right there. <laughs> but yeah, this was this was really good. I genuinely was not expecting this to be like as thematically rich as it is, so I'm very excited to read more of this eventually. Absolutely. So now we're going to shift back to more sillier manga, but manga that also still has a very strong social commentary thematic element to it, surprisingly. And that is Service Wars by Suren Hatamune, which you may recognize as the author of Matama Security Spirit Busters. That's right, they are back with a new series. Uh, their story wasn't over yet because they've got this new series now in Jump Plus, Manga Plus, that is not about a ghost buster, but is set in a ghost town of a shopping district. Basically, the setting is like a Chinese restaurant, Ajimaru. It's like kind of the only business still operating in like a shopping district that every other store is closed and joining customers, mounting debt, like they are pretty much about to go under. Even though there are people around, the town is populated, but like there's just no customers coming in. But the owners of the store, our main characters Renge and her father, Iwao, they encounter Nasunosuke, a wandering waiter passed out in front of their restaurant, you know, after training for a while in the mountains, fighting bears, uh, as we saw in like the opening color spread, but like forced to come down after he exhausted all his food supplies other than red wine, basically. And he mentions he's been trained to fight a certain organization that we don't have much relation on. 
But basically, he decides to kind of uh, recuperate the restaurant. Uh, he, though his like service tendencies, you know, <laughs> make him very quick uh, and eager to help them out. So when they treat him to some tanen, he gets like really into it and basically kind of eats outside in a performative way that draws a crowd to the restaurant. And then in the restaurant, he like just helps serve all these customers in a very showy fashion that really impresses everyone. Even when a serial chronic complainer, Stopwatch Higuchi, comes to the restaurant to just badger them with his complaints. Like he has literal stopwatch that he's like, oh, you haven't talked to me in 16 seconds since I sat down to ask for my order. It's been 30 seconds, 10 seconds, and I will have a right to complain. Truly the greatest villain in any manga, honestly. Yeah, but basically, like, even though this guy is, like, trying to complain about everything, Masanosuke is, like, such an insightful, perceptive person that he was able to clock what Sawaxikiguchi would want in order like immediately before he even sat down and so when he's like oh you gotta serve me chill noodles in seven minutes when you know, with how busy kitchen is, it would, it would take much longer than seven minutes because he planned in advance. He serves him immediately after ordering. And so instead, Sigiuchi is like trying to sabotage him with like putting a needle. But even then, like Nasunosuke puts that situation in his advantage, initially turning people off by like polishing the needle and treating it kindly, but then like impressing everyone by drawing like a message in lights with the beetle's glow and then like proving that, oh, it was you who actually brought the beetle in not us. So basically through this event, they are able to draw up a lot more interest and support in the restaurant again to get more regular customers. And like Renge's dad, wow, is like so impressed by Nazunoski. It's like, you know, with this guy around, I think we'll make a killing. So he hires him. And then eventually, like, it's revealed that Sawa Sekiguchi and then another guy who comes in the second chapter, Overorder Oda, like, they were hired by an outside agency as basically freelance complainers to try and get this restaurant to get a bad reputation and shut down by a group called Claim who is an order professional complainer. And like members of that group come, including like an old rival slash friend of Nazanosuke, who he had tried to find ways to war her up over a period of time. And then one day just kind of left her for a training, making her think that she was left behind because he gave up on her. So she comes back with kind of revenge, but then he reveals the results of his training and warms her up with his own heat, basically. And that, that does actually warm her heart. But she reveals that, oh, well, Claim is going to come to try and shut your restaurant down. And then all the members of Claim come. And then the leader of that, shout out Suzaku, reveals that, oh, we have been hired by a client, Heaven and I, a development company who has their hands in everything from malls, movie theaters. And they are the owners and developers of this nationwide shopping district mollification project, which their goal is to transform the rundown shopping districts across Japan and revert them into malls. And so basically, they want to get this restaurant to shut down so they can buy the land rights to all the restaurants in the shopping district and then demolish it to turn it into a mall, basically. And so basically, Nasunosuke, in response to this, is like, well, 
what if we decide and we end up revitalizing this entire shopping district, then you can't come in here and buy up all the land. So that's like their goal is like to try and revitalize the shopping district and get new businesses in there and make it thrive again, not just their restaurant, but like all the restaurants and businesses in the area. And so they're off to a good start because like another person has opened up a restaurant in the shopping district. Bagel Hayato, and he is actually a former employee of Heaven and I, and he got upset at the company's plan to turn shopping districts as well. So he started up his own punk teamed bagel shop. But like, unfortunately, like they're kind of fighting an uphill battle because like so many of the businesses have already been bought out by Heaven and I, like they have their logos already plastered on their shuttered doors and stuff like that. And the remaining people who are left have been brainwashed and recruited by Heaven and I who are like manipulating them and over working them until the point where you know they kind of you know run themselves in their business into the ground allowing heaven and i to just you know buy them up wholesale and uh continue with their development project so yeah this manga you know it's just an absurd comedy manga about like you know this guy who's just an over-the-top serviceman who's just so good at customer service in terms of predicting what people want and being able to meet their every need but at the same time it's also a manga that is very strongly commented thing on gentrification this idea of like this corporate development over like local businesses buying them out to just run them into the ground so that they can develop like more commercial shopping centers and stuff and run out like local businesses and encroach on like the local culture so yeah i thought that was very surprising the manga is pretty leans pretty hard into that in terms of like it's commentary and like that's what the series is about that's who the enemies are literally it's a it's a developing company who wants to tear down the shopping district just to build them all and that's like really the end goal but it's like a very real life form of villainy that's like surprising in contrast to just all the absurdity of like the over the top services that Nasuno can provide and the overtop complaining powers of oh, the, the enemies they run up against. And then I the, also the salesman powers of like kind of the Easter regional manager of Heaven and High who they're now kind of grappling with who like is such a successful salesman. He's known as like the brainwasher. He like brainwashes everybody in, into working with him just through his business jargon, just mentally beating people into submission. And he's also like jacked just through like all his hard off office work and believes that work is the best and all that a person needs so he's like so what if you're being overworked and you know that's the most fulfilling thing there is so you know again very capitalist mindset like i just love that the, the villains of the series are just like outright extremes of capitalism so that's that's just great but yeah it's a very funny series with like some very strong social commentary and uh, i'm really enjoying it just as much as i enjoyed metano security and i think this might even have like an even stronger premise and uh, some gag to it so far yeah i'd agree with that like we talked about it while it was running obviously here and there but you know mitama security again when we first covered it like i i didn't like it right away like it kind of had to grow on me a bit like but i i could i could tell there was like something there and i think you know with that series like i've said before like the longer it went on and the more characters it introduced like the funnier i found it and the more i enjoyed it I think this is a lot stronger from the get-go. Like, I think the first chapter really sets up its premise, like, a lot stronger than Mitama did. 
And yeah, I mean, I don't know. Reading this made me realize like how much I miss Hatamune's comics. And I, I really wish, because I, I think this is like his third series. I think his first series still hasn't been licensed. I, I hope it does, because I, I kind of need more Hatamune comics in my life. Because, again, I only got to read a little bit of this. But from the little I read, I really, really enjoyed it. I think it's it, it's a lot funnier at the start than Mitama was, in my opinion. So, like, I again, I totally agree. It's, it's stronger from the get-go. But... Yeah, it's it's just I don't know what else to say about it other than it's just really really funny. Like I think you know a, a lot of the beginning gags really got me. Like when they find uh, Nasunosuke in the strip and like they think he's dead and like it's like oh he wrote a dying message and then it turns out it's like multiple paragraphs long or whatever that really yeah. got to me. And there's a great show in the first chapter where like Nasunosuke's stomach is rumbling so much yeah. that they they try to talk over it but they can't hear themselves over it because like the sound effects are literally like interfering with the word balloons like they're drowning them out yeah that's great and they're like trying to talk over it and Renge was like oh what is this a nightclub or whatever and I'm like yeah that's that see it has really good gags like that and also like I mentioned earlier villains like stopwatch Sekiguchi or over order Oda like again these are these are some of the best villains I've seen in manga like because this is it's it's relatable like that like the like the people that come into a restaurant sometimes and they're like really super high maintenance and you really don't want to deal with them but you have to and you just kind of have to work with them like it's so good yeah i have to imagine anyone who gets to a service or just anyone who's, who goes to restaurants of know these types of people who are like you know just super nitpicky and complainy and just demanding so like stop watching who you like oh you didn't do this thing in the time i wanted you to and you just chastising you all over for it and like being such a trick of like oh i'm complaining uh, about complaining and all that and then you have or who's like so demanding like asks you for too many things and then you have blanket who is like oh it's so cold here and this blanket is so absurd because <laughs> she, she brings in her blankets and then she uses them to make the room colder <laughs> Like, we're just spinning them around. So, like, it, it very quickly escalates into even more over-the-top, like, extrapolations, exaggerations of, like, behaviors of people who, like, go to restaurants that complain about them or businesses complain about them. Uh, the other members of Claim, like, are also pretty, uh, pretty apt in that. Like, hair-shedding Dion, who, like, sheds hair and food and complains oh. about hair being in his food. Uh, false feed Alyssa, who, like, makes up negative stuff about restaurants and stuff and then shares it with her followers on Twitter. Uh, baby Boss, who's like literally just a giant man baby. Uh, needy Okama, who is like a needy old man. Hopefully student Hagi, who is like a student who like, you know, is very cranky and just goes and studies at a restaurant without ordering anything. Ugh. Uh, Black Pepper-chan, who is like the most absurd one, but it's like a robot who believes the greatest threat to Earth is man and just like is constantly complaining about how humans are the worst. And then there's shout out Suzuku, who like is so renowned for his complaining that he gets banned from restaurants without even stepping inside. Like literally, he shuts himself out by rejecting the store before they do anything, like even when they're trying to serve him. Uh, and it's just, it's very absurd. Yeah, as, a, as someone who works in food, I can relate to some of these. And I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> uh. <laughs> but uh, yeah, this this series overall is just it's just super funny. Like I I can't remember if I mentioned this when we 
originally reported this on one of our last news episodes, but I think, like, the best way to describe this, if I had to compare this to any other series, like, this is kind of like having you heard I'm Sakamoto, except Sakamoto was a waiter. I mean, basically, like, he is a Superman, kind of like Sakamoto in terms of, like, being so adaptable yeah. to any situation, anything that throws at him, and, like, being able to thrive and be successful and, like, meet everyone's expectations of what they ask of him. So I appreciate that we do see that, like, he's not on all the time. Mm -hmm. Like, he's only on in front of people, but he does need to take time for himself to just, like, kind of zone out, basically. You know, just do nothing when he's with himself so he can, like, kind of recharge, basically, when he is, like, in service mode. So I appreciate that it does acknowledge that, no, he's not, like, completely superhuman. He does need to... (laughs) to take time for himself. Uh, he can't always be in service of people. He does need the savor, like the, the time he can't have just for himself to rest. Yeah, even Nasunosuke needs a break. Yeah. But yeah, I don't have anything else to add about this series other than it's it's really funny and I'm looking forward to reading more. Yeah, it's great to have Hachimune back and I am really enjoying the series. It's a great laugh every time uh, if you've missed like kind of the more absurd parts of mashal i think you should jump into this series because it kind of brings back that more earlier vibe of it in terms of the comedy and just the poking fun of like absurdity but it also has an even stronger like just again social commentary on gentrification to it that i appreciate too next we're going to talk about another like very charming comedy the Pension Life Vampire by Shoichi Takaguchi. This is set in a world where there are like supernatural monsters all about. In this series, they're called Acclaimed. Basically, you know, humans acclaimed have been kind of at war for a long time. And our protagonist, Eri, used to be a pension officer, also known as like a rewriter who shut down and kind of stopped supernatural creatures from causing trouble in the human world. And, you know, from a young age, she believed like the acclaimed fairy tale creatures or like enemies she had to defeat. And so she's left rather aimless without friction in her life after a peace treaty is signed with the acclaimed and her mission is complete, basically. And she's like the only one of her team who isn't happy about this. But, you know, she goes to her mentor and says, okay, well, what do I do now? And he tells her, well, enjoy life as a person and make friends. Enjoy your youth. Don't mess with the acclaimed anymore. And so she takes that as a mission. She enrolls in high school and she just decides, well, you know, friends will fuck to me naturally if I act like myself. So she, you know, still is very much in a military mindset in terms of like taking all these papers to a, a teacher's room, like all by herself and refusing help and stuff. And, you know, she initially like is kind of preventing herself from really making friends by like blowing them off to like whatever task she's doing. But on her way home, she kind of runs past someone she immediately clocked as a vampire, like a young girl with silver hair. She was like, oh, this is a this is a vampire. So she's like follows her home. And this vampire, Nika, is like the owner of this lodge that houses different people that people can come to to like kind of rest and hang out and stuff. And so she wants to make it a place that both humans and acclaimed can live together in and show them both hospitality and basically believes that if, you know, even if they're like different races, if they sleep beneath together under the same roof, they, they should be open to open up to mutual understanding and sharing time and culture with each other. And so like Nika initially mistakes Aerie for a guest, but when she realizes that she's not a guest, but also realizes that Aerie is a former pension officer and knows a lot about the claims, she invites her to work for her at the pension. And so 
Eri does that to kind of keep eyes on Veronica because she doesn't trust her and her intentions. But eventually she comes to see that Veronica is like a very clumsy person, a not a very like super clearly person, not really knowing how to run the lodge because like she leaves the kitchen all messy and full of trash and all our dishes. The library is super dusty as I've shelved books literally everywhere. She doesn't really know what all the rooms are. And a lot of that's because like she kind of just inherited the pension from an old friend of hers who she shared this dream with and is kind of like trying to live up to her dream and she's also a bit of vampire green so as royalty she kind of just doesn't necessarily know how to take care of her environments because she's had servants do that for her probably much less you know customer service things but she's a very friendly genial person Initially, like, Eri doesn't trust Nika, but, you know, they kind of end up both saving each other when, like, Nika accidentally upsets a dragon guest in one of the rooms, and they both work together to kind of subdue him. And from that, like, they kind of form trust pretty quickly after that, although Eri is a little reluctant to admit it at first. She comes to acknowledge that Nika is her friend, and she really cares about her, especially when Nika's old friend, Uriel, of Prideful mermaid princess comes to visits her and basically tests how much nika would go to help airy like by pretend kidnapping her and like you know tricking them into having a fight and also it's about like at this point that you kind of get a sense that this isn't just a friendship manga but there's very heavy yuri shipping here too between airy and nika which is made even more explicit when like a former uh, rewriter who idolizes Eri and is like a member of a fan club comes into the series and she's super like in love with Eri. And when she finds out about Eri and Nika's relationship, she gets the wrong idea and thinks that like, oh no, Nika has deflowered my Eri and she's like forcing her to do all these salacious things. And then in the aftermath of that, she gets the right idea. But in some secret chapters, when she's noticing like Ari and Nika like fighting, she's like, oh, you're just pretend fighting. You're just flirting. And she like kicks a pebble on the ground, like kind of pissed off about that. But like, it's, it's very cute and sweet. But uh, basically, yeah, that's the premise is that they're, they're trying to kind of be a bridge between humans and acclaimed by like creating the shared boarding house for both of them. And they're also trying to win over people who still kind of have resentment towards the other side. And currently they are visiting Rimi's grandpa, who has been training to like fight against the acclaimed and immediately clocks Nika as acclaimed. And so that's kind of the cliffhanger of one of the most recent chapters is like, what's he going to do? Are they going to have to get into a fight here? But uh, yeah, it's it's overall just like really comfy series, you know, with just a lot of like cute jokes and characters. And I just like the moments with them like hanging out, like in at least the second chapter, like Ari and Nika just like kind of go on a, a friend hangout to, to the shopping mall. And Nika has uh, Ari try on clothes and then they get like dinner together. And then it's, it's just very sweet, the relationship and the friendship they form. And then I also appreciate that the series is kind of very much like leaning into, oh, their feelings could grow even deeper than just friendship because Uriel is like also very clearly into Nika and she's like telling Ari, better be careful if you're not honest with your feelings, you know, because she's like kind of clocky. <laughs> Ari is a, is a love rival for, for Nika too. And uh, of course, as mentioned before, Grimi also kind of makes that connection very explicit. But uh, yeah, I, I'm enjoying this. is a very cute series so far. I, I'm enjoying the friendship between Nika and Ari, and uh, I just find it very charming. 
Yeah, I thought this was definitely very cute. I really like the kind of developing friendship between Ari and Veronica and like how Ari at first really doesn't want to like, really doesn't, is kind of like in denial about how close she's becoming to Veronica as the series goes on. I do like how that kind of comes to a head pretty quickly, actually, in like chapter two at the end where like... Yeah, when it seems like Nika is almost going to leave and the pension behind. Mm -hmm. And like she gets upset also because like her like subordinate comes over and she has to kind of deal with him. And Ares upset at being blown off when they had made plans. Nika's spending time with someone that she doesn't care about, as she says. And so, you know, her human friends kind of point at, oh, the way you're being jealous you really are close friends you really care about her don't you and she like runs when she gets texted about oh i'm gonna go back home can you take care of the pension for me and she's like you can't just up and leave me i thought we were friends and she hadn't like read the rest of the text message that she was only going for two three days so that was another really cute moment yeah that, that was that was pretty nice i really do like a lot of their friend date and like you know them just kind of hanging out i think the biggest laugh out of me was when they're going clothes shopping and aries like oh, i don't know what the pick out and she just picks out like a really ugly christmas sweater and veronica's like put that back <laughs> i thought that was pretty good yeah and they're both socially oblivious in different ways because also at the store like aries just about to take off her clothes like in the middle of the store and nika's like yo aries there's something called a changing room you know <laughs> and has to apologize to the store manager for her so like i think that they compliment each other and just how oblivious they are in different ways so like being social but also like understanding like what human things are because they both are like so like uh perplexed by boba <laughs> you know and they're like well, what is this gonna taste like it, it kind of like weirds out like other customers they're like what why are they getting so worked up over this yeah they're, it's like tadpoles or something yeah <laughs> pretty good yeah i don't know i think aries kind of an interesting character because the, like the series starts off with her being very dutiful to her duty that was kind of redundant, but whatever. You know what I mean. Like, she, she's very um, dedicated to her job in the war against acclaimed. And then when suddenly, like, oh, we have a peace treaty, everything's fine. And, like, I like that the series kind of explores her trying to get used to, I guess, civilian life, basically. And her just, like, trying to live a normal life. But, like, she doesn't really know how to, I guess. Like, I, I like seeing her kind of navigate through that stuff. Like, I, I think that stuff is the most interesting to me, personally. Yeah, definitely, like, kind of her learning to open up and, like, start forming, like, more genuine friendships rather than be so single-minded focused on, like, oh, I have this duty I want in life, but then, like, actually just, like, no, okay, well, I don't have, like, this maybe overarching goal anymore that I, I'm driving towards, but I can still enjoy life. I still have things to look forward to in life in terms of, like, spending time with this friend I really care about. For sure, yeah. I agree. I, I like the dynamic in the relationship between the two, and I, I think it makes for a very strong like sort of emotional core and i i really want to keep reading and see how their relationship develops yeah absolutely this is such a cute series i really love the expressions the art i just love like kind of the personalities of the characters if they have each other for well so very very keen to read more i also really want to see and i mean i guess we kind of get it here and there and you can let me know if like they explored this even more past chapter three but i really want to see more of the world in general because like when i was first reading this and i got to the part where it's like oh we have a peace treaty now everything's fine like i couldn't help but think at first like oh there still has to be tension on like both sides and i really want to see that explored more oh yeah i mean they did mention it but like in the most recent chapters they have like visited like Rimi's grandfather who 
is like an old man who still has resentment towards the acclaimed has been training to like pick a fight with them and so they kind of like are visiting him to like kind of just talk him out of it and like he's immediately kind of starting stuff with Vika because he immediately recognizes that she's an acclaimed and stuff like that okay so you know that does require like visiting to a new location so we see like kind of them going on the train and Nika being excited about it and walking into a shrine yeah we're, we're visiting some new settings that we're kind of exploring more of the conflict also like lore detail dropped is that like Nika is the one who kind of brokered the peace treaty like she came up with the treaty and like the terms of it so there's been some more lore and world building in recent chapters that's good that's good lore is always good um yeah okay because that was something i immediately thought of was like oh this can't be like that easy you know so i'm glad the series like explores that more because i was kind of worried about that at first also i was also kind of wondering like do civilians know about the war between humans and acclaim because i wasn't totally clear on that either yeah so it seems that most people are unaware of the acclaimed because like aries group is more of like an covert organization not many people knew about it and then when like they are just being blunt about it ronnie is like oh i'm a vampire to like aries human friends and aries like i was a rewriter and a member of like the squad that was tasked with like kind of fighting acclaimed like her friends are like oh what, uh, that's great what manga is that from you know <laughs> so they don't they don't really take them seriously they're like are they are they role-playing here what's going on yeah i wasn't sure if this was like a demon slayer thing where it's like oh yeah obviously there's this battle between demon and slayer going on but the demon slayers aren't recognized by the government and like you know most humans don't even know the demons exist i wasn't sure if it was like that kind of thing or not maybe but yeah, other than that, yeah, I'm, again, from the little I read, I, I really enjoyed what I read, and I, I really want to see, like, where, I guess where the main relationship goes, and I, yeah, I just, overall, I just thought it was really cute, you know? Like, I, I genuinely really enjoy seeing these two characters, like, spend time together. Yeah, very sweet relationship that may evolve more from friendship over time, as, as the series is very early on been teasing about, so uh, I'm definitely down for it, too. Mm-hmm. Can I transition us into the next one real quick? Because yeah. I only have like one <laughs> I only have one note for the next series we're gonna talk about, and it's just in all caps, what the fuck? Okay. That that that's all I had written down. Cause boy like, and I know you'll talk about it in a little bit, and I just want to say real quick, this was a series that, like, I kind of knew about going in ahead of time, because this was, like, I think the one Manga Plus series that came out over the past couple months that, like, I had seen people, like, talk about on Twitter. Yeah. So, like, I kind of knew what to expect going in, but not totally. Like, I don't I don't really have words for this so far. So, yeah, th this, one's, this one's gonna be fun to talk about. Yeah, no, this one is definitely like broken out uh, to be a favorite of manga Twitter because it is a very interesting horror premise. Some people have said, oh, it kind of gives uh, them Ito vibes. I don't know if it quite stylistically feels like that to me, but like definitely like it is a very interesting premise and it escalates very quickly. So I could see that. I, again, we'll get into it in a little bit. I think a lot of elements of this feel very similar to like Goodbye Airy to me. Yeah, I think that is more apt of a comparison to me to Fujimoto's work than to Ito's. This feels like a manga created by somebody who likes Fujimoto's work and or worked with him or both, you know? <laughs> yeah, I would agree with that. But Shibatarian by Katsuya Iwamuro. The premise of the series is that there's this, this guy Sato. 
he finds this kid, Shibata, kind of like buried <laughs> under a cherry blossom tree. Some bullies just like apparently planted him in the ground because he was trying to prepare for a role in the culture festival. It's like these the cherry blossom trees. Bullies were like, hey, uh, we'll, we'll help you with that. We'll plant you like a tree. But like, you know, Sartre digs him out and he and Shibata become friends over time because Sato, he doesn't really like anyone else. He doesn't like the crowd. He looks down at other people. But he becomes comfy with Shibata. They go hang out and watch movies together every day and make comfort friends. And, you know, Shibata, he's really into movies and he asks Sato, like, hey, do you want to, like, make a movie with me? You know, I've written the script for a movie. And so they decided to work together to make a movie and they recruit one of Sato's classmates who he sits next to, Watari, to be the heroine in the movie. And yeah, they make this movie and they enjoy the process of it and they want to show it at their like culture festival, but they can't use the AV room because the soccer team is going to be showing like their highlight reel at the festival. Even though like the team captain like doesn't really care about it, but like he humiliates soccer in front of the entire class by asking, well, would, would you rather see guys or would you rather see our soccer highlight reel or Sato's movie with Batari and what's his name? Like no one knows who Shibata is. Uh, even Watari like asks the teacher it's like uh teacher do you do you know someone named Shibata and the teacher doesn't even know who Shibata is so like early on you get this sense of like Shibata really there like or is this someone that Sato is imagining because on the first time of filming Watari is like oh where's Shibata and Tazeta is like well he's right behind you and he's like oh uh, and she turns around but then suddenly Shibata is like right by Sato so there's some seeds in the perspective of like is, is he real is he not basically you know, they aren't able to, to show the movie. Sato is upset about it. And, you know, when he switched Shibata later, he, like, is complaining with him. And he's like, you know, I wish everyone was more like you. I, I don't really like anyone else. And he also wishes that, man, I, I wish everyone died, basically. And Shibata's like, mm, I don't like stories with unhappy endings. But tell you what, in my next story, I'll be the villain and you can be the hero who kills me. And that's kind of the last time that Sato and Shibato end up really seeing each other for a little while until like, you know, five years later, we get a time jump. And then like suddenly, you know, Sato is having kind of a conversation with Watari and she mentions, oh, Shibata came up to me the other day and gave me tickets to this movie and wants to reconnect with you. So he goes to see Shibata because he's been thinking about him all this time. They see the movie together and they watch the movie. But even though they usually are singing their taste in movies, at the end of this movie, even though Sato liked it, Shibata's like, oh, that was terrible. And I don't like happy endings. And so Sato's like, wait a minute, who are you? You're not the Shibata I know. But then like he starts talking about, oh, remember the, the script idea, the movie idea we talked about when we were kids? I have a name for it now. Shibatarian. And then we got it to see like everyone in the theater is Shibata somehow. And it's a very striking <laughs> visual. Uh, and then he's like, okay, now we can finally begin. Let's start by killing everyone from that old elementary school. And so Sato gets the, the hell out of there and goes to Wichari. And then the next day they see on the news that, oh, like there's been a bunch of kidnappings of adults. And then Shibata comes to their apartment and like he asks to see Watari and like Sato is like suspicious of him. It's like, you know, you're doing this, aren't you? But like they tie him up. But even when they tie him up, like Shibata spits out like a little seed of his head that grows into another Shibata. 
And then he does it again and again. And so he, he replicates himself. So they try to escape. They end up running into the former soccer team captain, who's now a cop. But he apparently seemingly helps them get away. But in actuality, is luring them to like a warehouse in the country where all the Shibatas are. Brings some Sato and Watari right to them. And then in a really uh, surprisingly, like Shabbat asks him, hey, do you know what they used to play soccer with instead of a ball? And... Yoshida's like, what? Human heads. And he, like, with giant <laughs> pair of scissors, cuts off Yoshida's head and then literally kicks it into a trash fire. Uh, and then we find out that he has decapitated all of their former classmates. Ooh. And then it's like, okay, now we can continue with the movie. And Watari will be the heroine and she will get killed. And then Yoshida, you will be the hero again. And Yoshida refuses to play along with Shibata's script. So Shibata kind of is like, okay, well then let's change the plot then. It'll be, you know, a conflict between two former best friends. And it'll be us versus you who will kill who first. And so so Sato and Watari are now on the run from this army of Shibatas that are hunting them down to kill them. And there are different types of Shibatas apparently because we get introduced to like Genki Shibata who is a very buff version of Shibata nope. who like throws the decapitated heads at uh-huh. them. And like also, you know, gets very upset when people point out he's not like good at math and he strangles like one of the other Shibatas for calling him out on that. So he's very like, uh, even though he acts very friendly, he's very unstable. As all these Shibatas are, but he's the most dangerous because of his Rafa skill strength. And so now they are just trying to escape for these Shibatas to figure out what the heck is going on. And also like the entire world is kind of now privy to this because like Shibata broadcasted this game that he's playing with Sato and Watari basically to the world. And some people are like what is this but yeah so it's an interesting premise of like they're being hunted by all these shibatas and also like the entire public is aware of it who can they trust for help (laughs) so yeah uh it's a very very unsettling series like terrence like kind of the seemingly kind of friendly innocuous like character design of the shibata character plays it for horror very well yeah sure does you can take like this very like it was a very almost high school family-esque design in terms of like kind of the face shape and like kind of the big ovally eyes but like you you twist that for horror it's it's really effective and yeah it's just like this this creepiness of like what is how is this happening? Is Shibata like a supernatural phenomenon? Is this the same Shibata that Sato knew in the past? How do they replicate in the way they do where they can like spit parts of themselves and that those grow into new versions of them? Yeah. Uh, well, how many different variations of them are there? alongside this Genki Shibata so um yeah and then it's also kind of a series that is kind of dealing with this idea of just like people who were socially outcasted who kind of like had resentment towards like other people and like had these more violent fantasies of retribution against them you know Shitato had that Ritari reveals that she also when she was a teen was an outcast and she also had thought about like killing everyone uh, with telekinetic powers you know and so it's like kind of this idea of these these characters who kind of come from like these socially isolated backgrounds and they had kind of these violent animosities uh and hateful wishes for violence to come to people around them like now they are kind of getting what they they want in a way but also are now being targeted themselves uh which is is interesting i don't know how far or where it's going to go with that but it's an interesting place to start with in terms of like the motivation the justification of why things are happening 
the way they are. So yeah, it's a very unsettling series, and I, deservingly, I can see why it stood out to so many people because it's you don't. It, we talked about like Jinri Shoku, and that's a very effective horror trail comic, but it's it's not quite as like unsettling as Shipitarian. No, that that's true. That's true. I. I don't even know like what to say about this other than every everything so far that it wants to do it succeeded at I think it's the best way I can describe it like boy you know again I I kind of knew what I was in for because again I had seen people talk about the series ahead of time but like at the very beginning when you get like the big title drop like oh Shibatarian or whatever if it, 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 it feels I mean first off that it feels like a movie which is great and then like literally the next page is like this kid buried underground with just his head sticking out you know that I because I kind of knew like what the tone of this was going to be I already felt like oh man this isn't going to lead to anything good absolutely not <laughs> Because I, I think I think I also saw like the spreads of Sato in the theater and like just revealing all the Shibatas just like, man, that's just so it is just amazing how like Iwamuro takes this very, like, like you said, very simple character design and gets like so much mileage out of it in terms of the things you can do to like make it as unsettling as possible and like the different forms that this design can take. I, I think it's in chapter four where like they're trying to run out of school and they go into that one room and it's just like a, a bunch of Shibatas, but like they're all like so grotesque and like they've taken like these monstrous forms. Like I think, I think there's one where like it kind of looks like a caterpillar, but like made out of different Shibata heads that are like all coming out of each other and stuff. And it's like, man, I would love to be in the mind of whoever thought, oh yeah, let's just, let's draw this. I want to, <laughs> I just, I, I, I can't really get over it. It's really hard for me to like put how much I enjoy this into words, honestly. Yeah, no, it is a very strange and a silly series with like some very grotesque visuals. So it really is like, enthralling and just like okay where is this going and why is this happening so i'm definitely keen to keep reading it to see where, where everything will be leading up and it, again the art is incredibly effective yeah it's like yeah for sure twisting the simplistic smiling expression of shibata for horror in just these grotesque ways oh man yeah it is really cool to see like I don't know. I don't know if I would call this a horror comedy. I don't know if that's really the right way to describe it. I don't think anything has been like genuinely played for laughs so far. It's just like a genuine horror series, to be honest. Yeah, I guess it's the kind of thing where like if you saw like a page of it out of context, maybe it might be kind of silly. It is absurd. I mean, like it is rather I mean, it's disturbing, but also it is funny that like (laughs) <laughs> Yoshida gets his head cut off by scissors and like literally kicked into a, <laughs> a burning pile, a burning trash can. It's like, you know, that is an absurd thing that takes something horrifying to humor. But then a lot of it is just like, oh, this is very creepy. I think that moment in particular was a moment where I did kind of have to put my phone down and be like, what am I reading right now? Yeah, that was such a shocking one because that is so like explicit. That was like. I wasn't expecting to see like decapitated heads. I guess we have seen decapitated heads in like other jump and jump plus series, but it's like it was pretty grotesque. It's a, that's shocking. Uh, the, the 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 imagery here gets really gr- like around chapter three. I think is when it gets really 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 grotesque because like you literally have like sequences where it's like Shibata has you know his former classmates being hung from the ceiling, and then like you got that shot of them in silhouette, like clearly all bloodied and probably dead, and literally taking their other classmates and like 
having them in like um not not guillotines but like the like the little like wood plank things that are used to kind of keep them trapped while like their heads get like sawed off this stuff gets really violent at one point mm-hmm. yeah it is a shockingly violent series i mean maybe we should have like put spot where it's like go i think it's honestly i do think the best way to experience the series might be to go in blind but definitely if hearing what we just talked about intrigues you uh, check the series out because i can only imagine it's pretty early on it'll only get wilder from here yeah there's only like five chapters out at the time we're recording this and already it has to be sold honestly i re- i really i really want to see where this goes like th- th- this is another series that's kind of sort of hard to talk about because I guess not that there's not that there's nothing going on, but like it's clearly very early in its story, and like we don't really know where it's going, so it's it's really hard for us to like I guess discuss it as much as we would like to. I think, or at least it is for me anyway. Like I like this is a series that's hard for me to say anything other than it's good. Go read it. Like if you're looking for a good horror comic, like here it is. Yep, we are definitely uh, blessed to have like a good ongoing horror comic that's pretty accessible. For sure, for sure. Did what you get out. All right. But unfortunately, I think that's going to be about our time going into this. We probably should have said up front that we had a very limited time for this episode due to scheduling and whatnot. We really wanted to try to cover every Manga Plus Civil Pub. But again, like we said at the top of the show, there have just been so many that have come out over the past like two or three months that going into this, we knew that it was going to be a bit of a tall order to try to cover literally everyone. But, you know, um, again, we still haven't even gotten to like the show to jump stuff yet. So we are definitely going to come back to these in a little bit. So... We will have to table the rest of our Savile Pubs for our next Savile Pubs episode. But for now, I think we can say, you know, the few that we got to cover on this episode, I think overall have been like pretty good. Again, I think personally, there were some that I liked more than others. But even the ones that I didn't like as much, I still thought were good. And honestly, I I think the rest of the ones that we're going to get to eventually here, I think are just as good, if not maybe even better. I don't know, like, I, I really feel like the Sable, all the Savile pubs, especially that have come out of Manga Plus over the past few months, have been, honestly, have been genuinely really good, personally speaking. Yeah, we mentioned on top of the show, but a lot of very different kind of titles and a lot of really interesting titles. It's a really good crop of new series that are all doing, like, some really fun things and some really interesting things. Definitely on this show, we covered, I feel like, some of the strongest ones in terms of, like, the stuff that have the most interesting things, like, kind of going on with them in terms of, like, story characters, their teams. But there are still series that we didn't get to that are just as entertaining and interesting there are some that i do find weaker that we'll be talking about in the next batch but for this episode all the series you talk about i really really liked and i really really found super engaging and just fun to read and also really interesting to read and i think that is reflected on the amount of time we spent talking about these series so unfortunately only got to about half as many series as we hoped to on this episode but that just will leave even more to cover and more to dig into for next time that you can look forward to. For sure. And and again, we want to apologize because we are working with a little less recording time than normal today, but we at least wanted to cover as much as we could. And again, we know that we have stuff from, you know, other services that we need to talk about, but we'll get to those eventually because I... I still haven't gotten the chance to even touch some of the like newer Shonen Jump stuff, but I'm I'm looking forward to it because uh, some of those look pretty good too. So I'm I'm looking forward to covering those and the rest of our Manga Plus stuff, and maybe like one or two things from other publishers too next time. So as much as I would have liked to cover every Manga Plus title this episode, I am still looking forward to what we have to cover the next time we have to record one of these. But yeah, I, I hope everybody enjoyed this episode. 
go out and read these and uh, also look forward to the rest of the Sabo Pops we have to talk about next time. But I guess until then, uh, we're going to go ahead and uh, plug our stuff and let you guys know where you can find us, starting with my good friend Lum. Where can the good people find you? You can find me on social media. It's at LumRomiyasha, Twitter, my anime list, Tumblr, a Letterboxd. Wherever there is a LumRomiyasha, you can find me there under that name. And you can also read my reviews and writing over at MangaMarics.com. We have a lot of books that have come in, a lot of reviews planned to go out. We have a lot of interviews planned to be published, some convention coverage. So look forward to that coming soon on the site, as well as the other podcasts I do, spinoffs of MangaMarics, including uh, MangaMarics on TV, where I've been recently going through some new uh, animated shows particularly from Adult Swim so look forward to some more coverage from there and anime covering newer anime series and of course the Yours the Outsider Focus podcast I do Lum Squad we discussed a wonderful and wacky world of Ruko Takashi's classic sci-fi rom-com. We were having a lot of fun going through the manga, recently completed by Miss Media, the new anime that just wrapped up its first season and is available on High Dive, and the classic anime and movies available from Discotech. There's just so much to talk about with Ruko Takahashi's work and your Yasui these days. Even more to, to talk about, and especially to talk about excessively thanks to the Viz Manga app, making your Seattle as well as Sakahashi's other works slices by this just accessible through the app and simul publishing the latest chapters of Mao and Yashihime so a lot to talk about and be excited about as we're going to have your Seattle these days and we are trying our best to kind of get back into recording shape to cover it all get out some of our backlog episodes to you soon so look forward to more in there in the meantime you can check out some episodes that haven't been released to the public yet on the Manga Arts Patreon and if you like the art I make if you like the thumbnails I draw for our podcast or the animations and illustrations I do in general you can find that stuff on my Instagram at SidArtWorks Alright, but as for me, I'm Colton. You can find me on Twitter at SniperKing323. I also host and produce a lot of my own other podcasts that you can find links to over at my personal blog at coltoncorner.wordpress.com. Over there, you click on the podcast page and, uh, you know, just check out all my other podcasts that I do outside of Manga Mavericks, you know, including stuff like uh, One Podcast Prevails, a podcast where I talk about Detective Conan and Case Closed, whatever you want to call it, uh, Just a Gintama podcast where I talk about Gintama. Another Day, Another Adventure, where I talk about Dragon Ball with my good friend Sakaki. And, you know, just so many podcasts that I'm doing at the moment. Stuff that I'm not doing anymore, but I still want to link anyway. And even uh, guest spots and other shows I've done over the past uh, 10 years that I've been podcasting now. And so, yeah, again, coltoncorner.wordpress.com. Again, my personal blog. Click on the podcast page and check out all my other podcasting stuff. As for this podcast, you can find every episode at mangamavericks.com. That's where we post every episode first. Unless you're a patron of ours at patreon.com slash mangamavericks, wherever at the $2 tier, you will have access to select episodes of the podcast before they end up on our main feed. Basically, if we happen to have an episode of the podcast edited before it's ready to go up on our main feed, we will put it up on our Patreon at the $2 tier for patrons to listen to before anyone else. Admittedly, we don't do that as often as we would like, basically because of scheduling and we don't always have episodes done in time for that kind of thing unfortunately we're we're trying to get better about that we promise but if you want more reliable content uh you should sign up for a five dollar tier because at the five dollar tier uh we post a new bonus podcast at the end of every month for patrons only right now actually our newest bonus podcast is a podcast i did with sakaki in person 
Sakaki visited me over the weekend a couple weeks ago at this point, and we saw Knights of the Zodiac in theaters together. If you don't know what Knights of the Zodiac is, I don't blame you. It is the live-action Hollywood adaptation of Saint Seiya. And for those of you keeping up with the Patreon, I have read through all the Saint Seiya manga, whereas Sakaki has really not touched Saint Seiya, like, at all, really. So he went into this pretty much completely blind. So it was really fun, you know, getting Sakaki's thoughts on the movie as like a first timer fan and also trying to explain to him all kinds of things about Saint Seiya and him uh, just kind of taking it in as confused as possible. Making comparisons to Slam Raimi Spider-Man <laughs> movie, you'll be surprised to hear which Sakaki liked more. Uh, yeah, that was definitely interesting. So yes, please go listen to that. I had a lot of fun recording that with Sakaki and I had a lot of fun watching Knights of the Zodiac and talking about it. So if you want to hear our thoughts on on said movie. Again, that's at patreon.com slash mangamavericks at the $5 tier. And also, you can listen to that as well as like, you know, a bunch of other bonus podcasts we've done over the years. It probably goes without saying, if you sign up for that tier, you don't get just that podcast, but like literally every other bonus podcast we've recorded. So you get access to a lot of stuff, including said read through of Saint Seiya that I did with my friend Doctor through the Manga Mavericks book club. So, I mean, if you're a Saint Seiya fan, we surprisingly have a lot of Saint Seiya content over at the Patreon in particular. So again, patreon.com slash manga mavericks, go listen to all that. And really, it's the best way for you guys to support us and everything we do here on the show. Because literally every set we make on our Patreon goes back to the show in some way, whether that be, you know, website hosting, podcast hosting, uh, materials for the show, whatever we need for the show in some way, shape, or form, our Patreon money goes into that. So again, we really cannot thank you guys enough for supporting us on our Patreon. Again, patreon.com slash mavericks, and that's where you can support us. Uh, but as for everything else, you could follow us on Twitter at manga underscore mavericks or on Tumblr at mangamavericks.tumblr.com for all the latest updates on the podcast. Subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash mavericks where we post different excerpts of the podcast here and there and even some exclusive content every once in a while. Again, that's at youtube.com slash mavericks. Please subscribe to us. Email us anything at mangamavericks at gmail.com. Uh, do you have any thoughts on any of the pubs we covered on this episode or any of the pubs we have yet to cover that we're going to get to in the future? You want to let us know what we're getting to ahead of time? That's cool, too. Any manga that you're reading that you want to tell us about or that you want us to cover on the show, email us anything about manga, the podcast, whatever. We love getting emails from you guys because when you send us an email, we'll read it on the show. Once again, that's at mangamavericks at gmail.com. But the most important thing is, is that you subscribe, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. We're on so many different podcast platforms at this point, including, you know, Apple Podcasts and Spotify, wherever you can do this kind of thing. We would appreciate a rating or a review of any kind. We love getting feedback from you guys, whether be positive or negative uh, because when you leave us feedback of any kind we use that to make the show as best as possible all right but i think that's gonna about do it for this episode once again thank you guys so much for listening to this episode of manga mavericks this has been episode 229 and we'll see you guys next time for episode 230 bye guys sayonara sayonara